Greetings, ladies and managers, and welcome to this latest narration of the web series There is No Epic Lucia by the Puns. If you are new to the series, there is a playlist listed down below in the description. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Chapter 166 Sea Biscuits and Sea Hags. Excuse me, Miss Yutina, came a voice, and Yutina hit her head off the bottom of the desk in surprise. She muffled the curse as she put her hidden supply of travelments back in their hall. She always did her best thinking, curled up under the desk while eating ill-begotten sweets. She looked over her desk, taking a moment to point her magic eye the right way, as it had fallen asleep when she didn't use it. It was the wonky nose boy from the other day at the meeting. Giuseppe, she guessed with a confident smile. My name is Lim, he said awkwardly. Yatina confidently tried to shrink back under her desk. Wait, I'm wondering if you could teach me more about dungeons, Lim said quickly, and Yatina shot back up. But if I would teach you more, it implies that you think I can't otherwise, she insisted, and Lim looked puzzled. Yatina frowned at him in return. Why do you wish to know? I understand tactics and useful information, but that's covered by the scout's training, is it not? She inquired. Lim shuffled for a moment on the spot as if he was torn between staying or running away. Yatina was intimately familiar with the urge. You made it sound good. I learned things. It was like a real school, Lim answered finally. Real school? He made it sound like he hadn't had a formal education at all. Where did you learn? What school or area? She asked kindly, as she gestured for him to sit in the chair across from her. Her office was nothing more than a prefabricated earth magic stone block, but she had decorated it with enough books to block out any hint of grey colour, which was a nice way of saying Yatina could barricade her door with paperbacks alone if she needed to. Lim looked angry at first, then saw her face. You don't know, he asked, something clicking for him. No, she echoed, feeling like she was missing something. I'm from the diseased hand, he said, and there was a pause. Yatina stared, blinked, and then she made a sharp intake of breath. I'm... So sorry, uh, I forgive my lack of tact, she said quietly, and Lim shrugged it off. Schools weren't as important as saving farmlands and fighting off the sickness, he said, and Yatina couldn't imagine it. She had read about it. There was a disconnect between symbols on a page and a real-life extinction event barely averted. The diseased hand was a tragic event, part of the corrupt war. Three dungeons had gone corrupt in the span of a week each one expanding grotesquely underground until they merged into one. One dungeon of air, a dungeon of poison, and a dungeon of adapting defenses. It spread across the right grip, turning the lands black, and life was all but destroyed. A saint of water god and two others purged the land and caused a massive tidal wave to sink part of it, cutting the hand off from the mainland. Yatina had even heard that new dungeons kept trying to form on that man-made island, but they didn't last long against the madness entrenched there for years. Not all of the inhabitants could escape immediately, and those left behind tried to make a life out of the broken land. People, like Lim's family. That explained his question, and why he was in fair play. Still, better than what happened to the left fist, people didn't even get a chance to escape from that catastrophe. Well, what would you like to know? Etina asked as she shifted books around until she found a basic map and the basic standard guide on dungeons, a very solid book written by Terry Bellis Freighter. The first of its kind, the unknown hero described both basic traps and the methods of dungeons on the first few floors. 
This dungeon in the area is weird, right? I've not been in another dungeon yet, but I heard they're easier by a long shot, Lim asked as he idly rubbed his wonky nose. Yitino watched him motion like a cat, fighting the urge to reach over and re-break the nose for the boy's sake. Yes, and no, Yitino began and tapped the book written by Freighter. Difficulty is selective at early stages. It depends entirely on what the dungeon first consumes to grow, she explained. For example, did you know that this dungeon near Durance didn't consume mushrooms, people, or earth as its first material? Yatina said, as she tapped the wonky compass near her desk. What did it eat? Rocks? Lim asked curiously, and Yatina showed the boy her instrument. This is a very expensive tool that dissects mana, for lack of a better term. Refines them and matches mana signatures of other things. One can even match two signatures to a near mirror. This tells us what the mana has in it. The deeper we dissect, the closer we find what is first consumed, much like the rings in a tree stump, Yutina said proudly. She slowly turned a dial at the side, showing the orange mana flashing through several things like suits of armor, bones, slimes, cauldrons, and what looked like animal skeletons. She kept turning the dial until it shot past mushrooms. A man with a gun, three hunting types, what looked like to be an earth clumps and the image distorted badly in the last slide. What is that? Lim asked, voice suddenly quiet, as if he was witnessing something important. Yatina slowly adjusted three small dials, and the image slowly came into focus. A skull stared back at him, hauntingly judging them. Wyme knew the salt was going to be terrible for her hair. Her swept-back branches, blooming with flowers, were now drooping with salt. Salt floors, salt water, salt animals, salt air, and now Wyme was salty. The dungeon was making her mad, but not as mad as the guppies chasing them. Why wouldn't Dalta just let her fillet the damned things and be done with it? They splashed through the water, letting the salt bat slow the enemy down. The entire group of 30 Sea Hagens had entered the dungeon, but their large numbers worked against them in the tight corridors and sharp turns. This was why groups stayed under six people, she presumed. Fewer fish in a barrel moments. Get the sand, walkers. Find the jewel for the queen. One of the large creatures snarled, its green scales around its face bright red, as if it had taken a bite of its comrades in the struggle. If fishy is not in water, they still fishies. They'd still not sandwalkers, Boudin mused, ignoring the drama and threats against his life to question life. Delta couldn't help but be mad at his sudden progress. Foodie had made two flaws since this chase began. Thirty Sea Hagens, Delta, her monsters, Vadalin, and who knows what else was pushing a ton of mana into the usually solitary dungeon. If it took 80 mana to get to floor 8, then so far Foodie must have gotten about 180 mana since Delta arrived. Mana bursting was horrible, and she didn't blame Foodie for dumping the excess mana into things. It also annoyed her because she noticed something else. Foodie didn't have DP. He just had mana. She asked the system as she followed the monsters into the first major room. The human soul generates a constant flow of sentient ideas and awareness. To prevent your mind from exploding any time you would think to make serious change permanent, you get locked down until you had enough DP to do it in your own time. Dungeons do not get dungeon po delta points until floor 25 or 30. They simply don't design or desire complex things requiring self-control. DP is possibility of the soul. You had a soul from the start. Sister. Wait. If Foodie was made up entirely of mana with no sparks of DP, 
Then those weapons, those tools of fair play formed from their souls and seeds. They wouldn't just damage Woody, they would utterly distort or scar him. Now, when a dungeon's theme is known, it doesn't give people an automatic advantage. Yetina explained as she poured Lim and herself some brisk hot water with a dash of fruit. She hadn't a clue what fruit was in the fruit tea. She just drank it because her options were coffee, blood of some poor scribe, or protein shakes. Yetina had issues with all of these things. For one, no one used disinfectant wipe on the scribe after they were done. It was so unhygienic. But if you know it uses fire, you can focus on water, right? Lim suggested. Yetina eyed her mana dissector with a frown, putting it away for now, as she could ponder the results alone later. Some things were best done alone. Fire? Uh, what is fire? She asked Lim, and the boy blinked once. She was curious about what he knew, and this was a good question to lead him off. Hot air, but really hot? He said after a moment. Not quite, but the idea is this. Has the dungeon figure out fireballs, heat waves, molten stone, elemental sprites, sunlight? A theme is so much more than a single approach. The first ten floors, you can be excused for thinking of monofocus, can be normal. But dungeons are always learning. Knowing a dungeon's theme is only step one of a long, long procedure, she said softly. Scouts say as much. But how do you figure out what is done with its theme, Lim said, and Yutina took a long sip of her uh, fruit tea? The hard way, sadly. As the first Sea Hagen entered the room, Jeb hurled the salt crab at its face, letting the thing go to town with its claws. When the next one entered, Dalta watched as Foodie's first few traps set off. He had made shortly before Vaidelin had arrived. A long salt stalactite cracked and fell down sharply. Salt spike, Foodie said smugly as the Sea Hagen toppled over. Dalta winced and didn't stare at the result. She kept urging her team forward. Mad at me? Booty asked, sounding worried. Delta shook her head. I just don't like violence or blood, she explained. Oh, violence? Hurting others, she whispered, as they ran along a winding path of the room. It was a narrow road with the deep sea pools on all sides filled with spiky stalagmites just below the surface. Most of them were blunt, but it was a good use of the environment. Tally-ho! Lord Marshy turned and buried his fist into one of the Sea Hagens, then had leapt at them over the gaps in the pool and with a wicked red blade. The creature's yellow eyes bulged and the ridges then made up his face paled before it exploded back and hit the wall, sliding down with a twitch. As the last of Dalta's team made it through the next tunnel, Foodie stopped holding the traps back and let them fly. As the next group chased after them into the tunnel, a cloud of salt was lifted off the ground and into their eyes. Some of the salt on the ground had been extra large flakes to make it worse. One stumbled back enough that it tripped and fell into the pool, hitting the pillars underwater. Ten more of the Sea Hagens rushed in afterwards, ignoring their comrades. Show me the meaning of haste, Delta yelled to her monsters, throwing her hands up in panic. Wyam raised her hands and showed Dalta exactly what she thought of moving faster with an elegant gait. So, say you can get their themes down and general trap placement, what other issues can a first floor have? Lum asked, taking notes with little pictures. It hurt Jitina to see him reduced to that, but she also felt impressed that he carried on anyway. Well, it is rare, but there can be a puzzle. It's not common. But I've read reports, Edina said, and found a book in a pile of nearby on a particular topic and opened it. This is the twin dungeons of the left burden, 
an artistic rendition of the room just before their boss. She showed him, who looked enraptured by their knowledge that she was just sharing with him. Yatina had a book or two that had maps and pictures like this with smaller word counts. Maybe the boy would like to borrow one. Lum opened his mouth. Scout backfield, you're supposed to be on patrol duty, snapped a voice, and Yatina looked up to see some blades that she didn't recall. Lim jumped to his feet, pale and shocked at the words. I'm so sorry, sir, he began, and the blade clucked his tongue. Just because your brother was worth his salt and blade doesn't mean that you get to act like you're special, the brute growled. Yatina twitched something about his words. Just because your sister is a summer maiden doesn't mean that you're worth anything. Stop trying to be like us. Does your order supersede mine, second lieutenant? Yatina asked slowly, her voice taking on a detached tone. The blade blanched as if he hadn't even noticed Yatina in her own office. Captain Yatina man, uh, Cadet Blackfield is expected at... He began to speak, and Yatina held up her hand. He is to remain here and continue working on classified work under my command, she said finally. She looked at him. His talent is promising enough that I have handpicked him myself. Tell his superiors that he will be transferred promptly to my personal squad, she said. And Blolade's jaw dropped. That promotion would instantly make Lim a first lieutenant. Uh, I would like to offer my services, the man said quickly, as if sensing an opportunity escaping him. And Yutina slowly looked at him from head to toe. I'm sorry. I just don't see anything special about you, she said, and sipped her fruit water. The man left a moment later, his voice refusing to work. Lim looked shell-shocked. You are going to promote me, he whispered in a strained voice. Yatina shrugged. I'm supposed to have a six-man squad under me. I have none, so welcome aboard, she said, and poured the rest of her water into the nearby fake plant. The thing curled at its tips. Lim swallowed hard once. I can finally pay for my parents to get off the diseased hand, he said to himself with clenched hands. Yatina didn't know what to say to that. Maybe she should look into the charity that helps that part of the world. It could use more funding, maybe. What about your brother? She asked very slowly. Uh, he died in a new dungeon to the east. A snake dungeon that is off limits due to its birth or something, Lim explained sadly. Yatina opened her mouth, then took a moment to answer. I think my sister died in the capital. She won't respond to my letters, so I have to presume so, she offered in return. A sort of peace came over them both, sharing in their loss seemed to allow them to trust one another just a little. Yatina looked down at the twin dungeon's puzzle room on the first floor. It was a very simple design, but it set the tone for the rest of the journey down the floors. The door had six panels, one side you placed a tablet from a nearby table, and on the other side you placed a concept that opposed it. A bird on one side, a fish on the other, fire on one side, ice on the other, and so forth. Still. Puzzles were rare on the first floors. Foodie, we don't have time for this, Delta warned as Jeb sat against the floor in the chamber, having no trouble keeping the Sea Hagen out by sheer benefit of his girth. Solve, Food insisted with a whine. The puzzle before them showed two coral buckets of salt. The puzzle gimmick appeared on two floor panels around the room. Jack took one bucket and placed it on the very obvious rough stone square, and it sank down a foot or so. Wimed at the other, and the floor began to grind open. It began to open slowly. You worth the weight in salt, Booty announced proudly. Delta had to admit, she liked that one. They stick me with sticks. Jam will fire back, the troll announced, and the ground shook as he passed gas. 
causing the Sea Hagens to screech and retreat. Mime and Jack pushed to exit, trying to pull the doors open faster, gagging. Vadolin looked green, and Dalta had gone fully immaterial. She was not dealing with that. The vast laid ahead of the room. It just stood there like a lifeless doll. It didn't even have a cool entrance. Bosses tend to be lackluster in the early floors. Many dungeons simply take a monster and scale it up with mana, she told Lim, who still looked a little stunned at his promotion. Uh, are there any exceptions? Lim asked, curiously, as he drew a little stick figure, then a massive one. Hmm, a few. The ruby dungeon is notable. Its first floor boss is a mirror, she said, pointing to the red circle on the map in the middle of the long stretch of desert. Really? How did that happen? Lim asked, eyes aligned with wonderful delight. Yutina enjoyed this, the sharing of her passion. Oh, there are many stories. But the fan favorite is that an ancient sultan's concubine was about to be replaced with a younger model. She took her to the most precious possession, a beautiful jeweled mirror, and hurled it out the window and across the desert, where it smashed into a very ground in which Ruby Dungeon would form, she said, putting on a slight storyteller embellishment to the tale. The likely factual story involved the desert being superheated by an event and the area around Ruby Dungeon actually being a valley of dangerous glass shards, but there was no need to ruin it for Lim. Mirrors represent self-love if you overuse it, right? So that would explain the dungeon's obsession with pretty things. He was born out of the tool used to check beauty because the concubine's life depended on it, Lim said excitedly, looking at the edge of his seat. It's a possibility. The first four blasts picks one person in the adventure party and mimics their power, but stronger. The trick is to stand so close to together that the mirror creates a horrible, inefficient mess rather than just a faithful recreation. Rutina smiled. Lum looked impressed. Still, the average boss isn't as impressive. Just a big bruiser tends to be the theme, Yatina admitted. Then you aim for the kidneys, Wyman instructed with a vicious example, knocking the Sea Hagen down in his deep before she caught another by the throat. The nearby massive soul crab looked on at the scene with a flicker of uh, attention. There is more than one. Use them against each other. People are squishy. They are squishy together. William howled in bliss. Wyman is so cool. I want to be a warrior when I grow up. Can I visit your dungeon when I do? Vadolin asked Lord Bushy, who hummed. We'd be most happy to receive you, he promised the lad. Crab suplex, Marfos, Wyam yelled as she kicked another sea hagen, the creatures looking more ravenous by the second and never ending. Thirty had come in initially, but by now, far more than fifty had been knocked down. She frowned as she felt the sea hagen slowly begin to retreat, but there was something at the entrance, a far more potent seed than before. It reminded Delta of Davina, a being in touch with nature, but this one was like a storm, like innocent people being smashed with the rocks, like a violent wind. Destruction, and not creation. Enough playing, something is coming, Delta whispered, and Wyam stopped laughing and threw the two in their hands to the side. All Delta's monsters could sense her emotions. Lord Mushy, Vaidolin's life is in your hands. Foodie can't open the door to let us through unless his boss is beaten, Delta continued. The being had reached the first floor. Some water moved around it, salt pillars crackling as it walked past. The salt trap went off, and the cloud was just parted as if the blade had been swung through it. The air itself was the creature's tour. As you command, mother, with me, lad. Lord Wishy directed the boy to an alcove off to the side of the room, 
hidden from all who entered the bathroom. Mushy was the best to hide. While not incapacitated by the salt water, he was weakened greatly by it. The creature drew closer. Delta clenched her hand. How can anyone take these dungeons on? Lim said, shaking his head at some of the creatures. We just use more effective killers, Yadina said bluntly as she sorted through the paperwork to sign off on the promotion. Those with calls have massive potential. The closer we advance to the goal or mission, the more we grow. The more important the mission is, the truer it is to who we are, the faster we develop. Not only that, there are those who engage in unspeakable acts, she said, her voice turning frosty. Breaking the core or draining it of its manner through a vile magic can take its potential, its power to make fantasy into reality, and make it your own. Lands wither, waters run dry, monsters rise in fury, and disaster comes when an established dungeon is destroyed. One person can doom thousands for power, she explained, remembering the many calls she had studied in pieces. Such practice is banned, but it wasn't always. Many wars have been fought over the ripest of dungeon calls, Terrible wars, in which a horrible silence always seemed to follow in the pages of history, she sighed. Some of the calls deserve to be broken, not for power, but for what they've done, Lim said, putting his pen down. The one that killed your brother, she inquired gently. Bettina was surprised when he shook his head. Those are just dungeons. I don't mind them. It's the ones that took my home, turned the water, land, and sky black. I hate them, he whispered. You'll be happy then. Corrupt dungeons are basically reverse dungeons. They suck in all life and matter, drain the land until it crumbles away into the void below. They are to be destroyed at all costs. The diseased hand is, uh, tricky because of these three combined forces. We've hit one or two, but the last always brings them back, she explained, feeling oddly guilty that she hadn't done more to help. That fair play hadn't. But the maidens began to vanish only months before the corrupt wars erupted. So I just need to make my core strong, and I can beat them, Lim asked almost childishly, at this point. Strong calls have risks, Lim, a desire for more power, the nightmares of edge sickness and more. You have to temper both soul and core, Eugenia said, and Lim leaned in. Can you teach me? he asked eagerly. The researcher closed her eyes and then smiled. Sorry, I don't have a core, she said, getting the awkward statement out before it could build. He stared back in shock. How? he asked. It seemed even Lim knew everyone had a core, should have a core. She pulled down the top of her sweater slightly to show a massive burn scar that started at the collarbone and spread across her shoulders. It covered most of the front of her body, focused around her chest. The last time I saw my sister, she did this. I can't do magic and I don't grow like others, but I've got my mind in my books, she said tightly, forcing a smile. You're still worth more than the idiots flinging fireballs about or showing off some magic axe they'll never use, Lim insisted and looked down at his feet. My brother didn't have a strong core, and he was amazing, he said stubbornly. I appreciate your kind words, but I know my own worth quite well, even if others don't. Still, we can't deny that under the right conditions, someone's core can grow beyond their peers, a sort of refined seed that comes from long lines of warriors talented magicians, or those that just push themselves to the limit. A child of that line has such a core that even if it was starved all their lives, the husk alone would crush normal men, Yutina said firmly. What do we call them? Lim asked, holding a book in his lap. Most cores have a clinical term of normalized person core. I was one. You may be one. 
The baker in the city is one. A lot of guards and warriors could be one. For those with extreme growth, the correct term is refined core users. But a less flattering term is used by the public. Those with such power are said to be owners of monster cores, primal power that no normal man can possess, Yatina whispered, in case someone was listening. Do dungeons have an official term? Lim asked, leaning in as if he was ready for a secret. Yatina thought about it. Delta watched as the hulking ten-foot Seahagen moved into the room, bringing a torrential rain cloud with it. Its core was scary big. Not as big as Maharia's, nowhere near as big, but noticeably. Turn back, she warned, and he could hear her. He turned black eyes with endless steps to them at Delta. If strong people are monster calls, then dungeons have equally worrying names than the public. Dungeon calls, dens of evil, murder holes, Yatina listed. I will rend you aside and take my prizes. The massive Seahagen rasped, holding a thick staff made of bone and black seaweed. The jewel and the human child for suffer, it said, drool leaking down its chin between bloody red teeth. Delta narrowed her eyes. Her aura flickered dangerously. Do not threaten them, she said in a simple tone with no emotion. Yatina cheered on a pen and looked out the nearby window. Dungeons have different names in different parts. None are flattering. Some are known as bloody butchers, those who take fresh kills and reuse them for their gain. Some are people killers, and others are just called demon machines, she explained, and Lim eyed her for a moment. What would you call them? he asked, and Yatina blinked. She had never thought about it before. I suppose, she trailed off. I will not retreat, the Seahagen hissed. Delta raised her hand, eyes glowing orange and slightly blue. Then you will not proceed either, she promised. Her hand dropped, and her monsters moved like blurs. I suppose I'd call them world builders. They just help us and the world so much. They're not parasites. They hold the world together by building new mana veins, Yatina said with a wistful look to her. Huh. Uh, it's a bit technical, Lim said, grinning to show that he meant no offense. Oh, and what would you call them, still currently a cadet Blackfield, she said with a raised brow. The names. If they have one, he said and stood up to start putting books away. Yatina watched him go. What a sassy child. Still, his logic was solid. A name told you everything when it came to dungeons. What does yours mean, Delta, she whispered. This is not how jewel dens work, the creature snarled as it had long cuts across its arms. Delta crossed her arms, blazing with mana. I'm changing the rules. I've had enough of these rules where it's the bad ending or the worst ending. My name is Delta, and I won't back down, she announced as Jeb picked the Seahagen up and began to slam him across the walls, ignoring the balls of pressurized water cutting into his skin. You are chaos, damnation in mana, the creature howled in pain. Delta looked over at the hiding Vadolin and shook her head. I'm just a failed dungeon core, she said, and Wyan began to bind him with roots, which he cracked trying to escape. Hey, Jewel Den, then where is your treasure? Where is your gold? The Seahagen hissed in mockery. Where is your legendary lot? 
It gargled, a word sounding like a personalized slang. Please, I'm far too sophisticated to be needing gold, she scoffed, and the creature, Wyam and Jack all cringed. Come down to my dungeon soon, you monster. Heck, stay here once I teach Fruity the ways of Delta. There's no epic loot here. Only puns, she grinned, and the storm above them broke. You do give out spider panties, Wyam commented. Delta pursed her lips. Hunterday intermay, essay it I dispay antispay, she said, making slicing motions across her neck. Some people simply didn't need to know about the Queen Victoria's secrets. She was running in the spider room. End of chapter. Chapter 167. Follow the Blue New. The storm Sea Hagen seemed to howl in rage, then determination. I will not fail the queen, he snarled, slamming his staff into the ground. Torrents of water appeared from the nearby salt streams and sheared through Wyam's elongated arms. Wood cracked and she dropped him with a hiss. Delta watched as his seed passed, shifting between the kind of seed she saw in Kemi and Estel's group to something much closer to Dior Quis. She had never noticed that there was a difference other than size, but seeing one flicker between both states, there were obvious differences. The larger seed form looked shaped, more chiseled, as it was some kind of artist that turned an already creepy stone into a more horrifying piece. It looked like it was becoming a rage-filled child's face combined with a rotten fruit motif. Vadolin's seed looked like a lump, pulsing and off-putting, but not outwardly aggressive. Foodie's manner was already picking apart both seeds. Vadolin would be easily purified, but the Sea Hagen's it was resisting. It was too potent for the manner concentration Foodie was putting out. He would have to be weakened, worn down, and exhausted. Delta blinked just once. The seed would be much easier to claim if the Sea Hagen had to traverse many dangerous areas, fighting constantly, strain its mental capacity, and dive deeper into thicker manner. Funny how she thought dungeons had flaws because, well, they were dungeons. It was the little things she learned when teaching others. The Seahagen snarled and made a motion to come close, and then Jeb sat on him. There was a sort of noise like a grape being squeezed, and the ominous seed energy deflated like a balloon. Ingredients! Jack howled as he moved quickly, running over to scoop the things up before Foodie could consume his fill. Foodie groaned, and his mana limit was overflowing, so Dalta casually leaned over and formed a secondary storage for him, a sort of double around his core. It wasn't any harder than making Hero or Balakhole pickle. Thank you, Booty sounded exhausted, and she couldn't blame the kid. For him, this insane battle and powerful foes must be a terrifying new experience. For Dalta, it was just a Tuesday. She sensed the manor veins connecting her to the dungeon, where growing strained from supporting them like this. If they continued to remain, the lands between Foodie's dungeon and her own would become dead zones. After that... Up there would be the oceans with no waves or fish, black dead trees, barren soil that would grow nothing, and generic superstores that drove others out of business would spring up. We need to go, she told Foodie, as the corpses of the damage from the battle was absorbed. No, you can stay, the Foodie insisted. Delta smiled and appeared next to his core in a flash. Dungeon Avatar Benefit Number 4, Lazy Teleporting. I have to go back. If I stay, I'll hurt a lot of people in life, she explained gently, and the salty great core was foodie pulsed. We don't care about them, you stay, it said. 
Vidalda gently stroked the top of the orb. The entire thing ebbed with an aluminum geode. I'll be back, she said solemnly. Ma, are you back now? Fudi asked, hopefully, only two seconds later. Nice try, kid. This foxy teacher has got to get back to her own house before my partner burns the place down, trying to install ceiling-mounted flamethrowers or saw blades on her door handles, she choked. She knew New wouldn't do that. He was too classy. You be nice to Vadolin. He's going to be your friend until I get back, she insisted, and Foodie looked at the human child with the boss room. You? This was going to need a slightly different approach. Foodie, I need you to keep any sandwalkers alive until I get back. The fishies that we've just fought are fair game, and they don't want to listen. But other fishies might be useful, so be careful. Let Vadolin go home, and the others come back to explore your dungeon. Consider it a quest, she said, with a slightly mystical tone. Quest? Close enough, Delta said, and stood. She, she turned, a new message appeared. Foodie has accepted your quest. Success. Kill no humans or landwalkers unless they attack first. Repel attacking Seahagans. Optional. Befriend Vadolin. Optional, optional. Learn what friendship is. Reward. Delta's return. Nani? Delta muttered. Due to Subject Alpha and Delta working together, their systems have leaked into one another. Delta can now accept and offer quests as Alpha can. In return, Alpha can now offer contracts to a hero squad. The box was slightly glitched, and Delta had a feeling that this was never supposed to be a thing. Established programs include Alpha and Gamma. A second program lists Delta and Beta. However, due to events, the system has created a new program for the unlikely pairing of Alpha and Delta. The system box glitched once more and then vanished. A friend, squishy child, Rudy mused, thinking on how to do it aloud. Delta left him to it. Vadolin rushed back to his village, jumping over the large boulders onto the beach until sand turned to grass, and he ran uphill towards a towering bleached skeleton wrapped around a mountain spire. The great Kerbob was a monstrous sea worm that grew so large that it could stretch from ocean floor to the tallest mountain. Supposedly, one man had devoured it all in a single night. Vadolin both loved the story and feared it. Its ribcage acted as a natural column that protected the village of Pictra, nestled within. And as he rushed in, people began shouting that he had returned, and his father emerged from the central house, hobbling on a crooked branch as he clutched Vadolin close. The seas began swimming with Majors. I feared the worst, his father said, speaking into the top of Vadolin's head as they embraced. Pa, I discovered something, something to help save us and make the island healthy again, Vadolin cried out, and he knew that he had their attention. Vadolin was not a child to make idle boasts. He was considered a quiet child. What's that, my boy? His father asked, and Vadolin held out a fang of the stormcaller Seahagen. The salt dungeon had given it to Vadolin as a show of power. He swore he heard it call him squishy, but it let him go. None of the monsters attacked him on the way out. Blood, you're covered in salt. Don't you know how expensive pure salt is to import? This is terrible. A nearby lady said as she dusted Vadolin off with a deep sigh. Vadolin grinned and emptied out his pockets, raining the purest of salt. It took barely any of Vadolin's manner to make it stable after that amazing cobalt taught him how to make it his own. Inside his body, his seed shifted from a little bit, glowing blue and gaining a serene quality. Only a single, small blue spot had appeared, but it was enough to give off an impression of a smiling woman and of changes to come. 
No, I'm home, Delta said as she materialized in the courtroom. No, was in the map room, staring intently down at different locations. What you doing? Delta asked as she appeared at his side. Deciding if I want to conquer the left or the right hand first, he marveled, almost entirely humanoid with a young man's face. His hair still dark blue, along with what appeared to be an afternoon shadow on his face. New was maturing. I want to own it all, he said, spreading over the table with a sigh. In his own way. Did Sis give you a chance to teach Dungeon too? Did she give you the same speech as me? Delta asked, suspicious. Letting you near a newborn dungeon was asking for it to be burned into the burning heap of slag or murder blender. Yes, she did in fact. I'm going to choose my first dark minion now, New announced with a smug tone. He wiggled his finger until he landed on the most southern island of the crown chain. The island furthest from foodie. I can only help those that need to be dangerous, dangerous to have to defend themselves from cannibal tribes, insane wizards or... Ugh. Door-to-door salesman, New explained casually. What's on that island? Balta asked, worried since Foodie was so near. Insane cannibal wizard fish people that deem being eaten by them as an honor, New said dryly. Dalta stared at him blankly. Yeah, big scaly massive teeth, red mouth, hiss a lot and tend to throw water about while praising their queen. Dalta asked after a moment. That's the Sea Hagens, yes. Now I don't expect you to approve, but I may have to hurt them to prove a point, Lou said with a sniff. Delta chuckled nervously. Uh, I have it on good authority that they may be weak to crushing force, if that helps, she said, voice strained with the effort not to gulp. Uh, how much force? New asked, looking like he was taking notes. Um, I, I don't know. Jeb, how much do you weigh? She hollered down the tunnel. One whole jeb, he yelled back. One jeb's worth of force, she reported, and New looked at her for a moment. Whatever it is, I don't want to know. I'm off to show you how being a dungeon really is. Be careful, Doctor. Your place as hardest dungeon is now at risk of being surpassed by my minions of destruction, New announced, glowing blue in excitement. Have fun, Doctor began to wave cheerfully. You uh, ruin everything. New grumbled and vanished. Once New was gone, Delta went through her gains from her field trip. She didn't want to make New ask too many questions. If he found out Delta was willing to be a tough cookie when needed, he would make her be a tough on everyone. You have gained pure salt. All of Farah's and Jeb's cooking has improved. You've gained Seahagen giblets and aluminium scraps. New monsters unlocked for the fourth floor, Rust Devils. You've gained the Stormcaller Rod, a new option for Divina and Fourth Floor. Foodie has been added to the new network. Once your dungeons have developed into a special room, communications and trading can be undertaken. Only calls that have accepted you or new as a friend can join the network. Delta felt both tired and alive. This felt like just like being a person again. Going out for hours and end, doing good deeds, coming home to her many wonderful friends and monstrous eldritch creatures. Just like how it used to be. Well, sometimes there had to be pop quizzes, so uh, good deeds was stretching it. She felt her entrance open, and fair play poured in, looking more determined than ever. She spotted a lot more badges with two fingers instead of one. In the last group, the three-fingered ranked man entered as well. Behind them were two odd people out. A teen with a horribly angled nose and a hyperventilating woman with a slightly bugged out eyeball. The numbers didn't advance down the hall, but carefully guarded the woman as if she were more important than the others around her. 
Look! Ah, welcome mat. But it's all squint, the woman told the boy as she fixed the welcome mat. You'll be alright in here, the boy asked, and Dalton moved closer because the woman. Oh, I'll be okay. I have this manner charm that'll stop me from getting too sick if we explore. She waved at the concern. Someone or something had utterly melted a monstrous seed inside the woman to slag. Ashen remains the seed showed Delta, even now, that the whole thing was about to hatch. It was a lot like Maharia, more like a parasite than a seed, but whatever life had been in it had been burned from the inside out. But to do that and not also kill the woman was impressive. Terrifying, but impressive. Lim, look, look, this is a beautiful offering table, sturdy wood, simple bowls, and look, it's talking to us with signs. Quick, I have a silver coin that covers us both. The woman chatted as the men and women in the armor all shot her either amused looks or disgusted ones. What's in there? The boy, Lim, asked, and the woman gasped. A memorial room. Oh, I need to make sketches. I need to examine everything, she told the boy. Delta liked her. She just wasn't sure about the other captain guy, the one gripping the hilt of his sword so tightly with the creaking of metal could be heard. That one would need to be watched. Lou hadn't gotten a squad of monsters. It wasn't really needed for his job. His task was to make Dungeon stand on its own two feet as quickly as possible. Using monsters from Delta's dungeon would only make it reliant on Nu. But he was also allowed to bring a vizier of sort, a voice that he could bounce ideas off of. Ah, it seems we have arrived, Doctor of the Gargoyles announced as his long beak turned this way and that, his dark clothes rustling despite the fact that he was as physical as a ghost. Of all the creatures in the dungeon that weren't three to five inches tall, Doctor had the closest mindset to Nu. Perhaps it was because he made the gargoyle that they were more in line with how Nu thought. The dungeon did not look too impressive at first glance. Nu was just outside the entrance. He looked up and shuddered at the bright blue sky and the sun. So open, so bold, Ugh, disgusting. Nu hurried back into the cramped dark space to feel better. The dungeon entrance was an overgrown stone archway covered in vines. The thick spreading greenery occasionally had white blossoms on the tips. It was inside this caves of sorts where the single shaft of sunlight illuminated the space to reveal a lush meadow just before the entrance. Needs more skeletons and a warning signs, Nu reported, and Doctor wrote that down on a parchment with an extravagant black feathered quill. Once inside, the first monster tried to surprise tackle Nu with its head, only to fly off his material body. Nu stared down at what he had to work with. It was a fox. A pale green fox with swooping leaves for a tail and flowers on its head. Look, Sir New, it is a quadrupedal sentient salad dish, Doctor remarked happily. He was sketching as he was talking, and New had to admit that the artwork was detailed. It's a salad fox, New grunted as he examined it for anything worthwhile. It bared its teeth and tried to nip at his neck. Disappointed, New stood up and walked through the dangling vine only for it to try and snap around his neck and hoist him to the ceiling. Yes, this is more how I like it, Nu grinned, as he counted three of these strangler vines in one hallway. Are you a spirit? asked the quiet voice. Judging by the use of manner, Nu was speaking with the dungeon core. It's an intruder. We should bite, growl. Oh, the same voice said, talking to itself with a deeper tone. Nu was intrigued. He teleported to the core room. Dalta's manner cut through any defenses like a knife through butter, and Nu was only too happy to use it for himself. 
The core room was nearly 19 floors down. New had been envious, but a single glance told him how light on content they were. Delta's floors were expansions. This dungeon's floors were patches. The core room was a natural cave with floating waterfall and lush meadows. Near the bank, the core, a deep emerald one, was embedded deep into a skull of some creature. The skeleton had four legs and a long tail, but age and materials taken by the core had rendered it mostly impossible to guess what it had been. It's powerful, the core mused. We die fighting, we die proud, she hissed at herself, a feminine voice. My name is New, and I'm from the dungeon across the sea, he said, making sure he sounded confident and at ease. We are Trinity. You'll address us as Trinity. Intruder New, I, Trinity. Now that New was close, he could hear the three voices clearly. They weren't separate dungeon calls or split, but if he gazed closely, in the creature's mouth, ah, it made sense now. Your first material was compounded. The carnivore was eating a herbivore who was digesting flora. You are the cycle of life, Lou said, and the call was quiet for a moment. We did. I shall talk to you. The others are less inclined. I am the trinity formed from the herbivore. I'm softer, the listener, the survivor. The soft voice was simple. You can be called Herb. I'm not using trinity for all three of you. There isn't enough black leather and philosophy rants for it. New said, and the core was quiet again. I do not understand, Herb admitted. Stick with me, and you'll learn the important lessons, Lou said, and leaned in close. There is no understanding, he said. There is no understanding, he said, releasing all his trauma and joy of being a partner of Delta. What do you want? Herb wisely chose to move on in the conversation. I'm here to help you be a better dungeon. Turn your pitfalls into spike holes, your blow darts into sword launchers, your level 4 goblins into 60 orcs, who pays for the battle pass like a whale he is. New hissed, glowing blue. What is a whale? Does it bleed a lot? The deeper voice said huskily, the carnival voice. It's a whale, so yes, your name is now Carnage, New said simply. I accept this title of death, Carnage purred. He comes for me next. It'll mean me, the skittish voice hissed. This had to be Flora. It had no real actual thoughts going on other than immediate stimulation. If Delta were here, she'd call you a Florida or some such, New decided. Rip and tear into juicy soil. Take fishy's heads. Bloom beautifully, Florida cried. In the kingdom of Florida, carnage and herb ruled. The Trinity sensed something when New mentioned Delta. A tinge of respect, fear, and more. This new must be preyed upon by Delta. This Delta was the superior life form. They wanted to see this Delta now. All three agreed. Delta flushed and blushed at Yatina. The glass-eyed woman gushed over her memorial room with big words Delta couldn't repeat accurately. The extended vault architecture is very reminiscent of the fantastic Third Verulan era, where the artist of Velio created similar styles inside dance halls. His work crops up in dungeons sometimes because a lot of his work was subsumed in a great geoshake of the fifth era. Lim, you see this brick? It had to be made by a dungeon. Its geometry is sublime, she went on and on. Delta had to excuse herself to put a finger on her shirt collar and breathe quickly as she tried to induce cool airs downwards. Too many nice words. Delta was overloading. Where was new when she needed her ego popped? This clover fox has upgrades for a poisonous bite. 
Lou said, trying not to wave his arms. Next floor is only 20 mana away, Herb said simply. It costs 10 mana, Lou said, strangling a scream. The core glowed. We, the Trinity, have voted. Two against the bite and one for, the core said simply, and Lou led them. Lou didn't know how long he had before the Seahagen returned to attack the Trinity core once more, but he knew it wasn't a long time. Since I can crush you with sheer manner alone, I overruled the democracy and installed a tyranny, Lou said, voice deadly quiet. The core was still a stone until it blinked once. We vote as a union against that. You can't unionize against me, Lou complained, turning to Doctor, who was conversing with a shapely boulder. Can they? he asked the smart gargoyle. Indeed they can. Mistress Delta would even support their developing democracy, he reminded Lou. No. What Delta would do is infect them until she had them all in her pocket or eating out of her hands. Can I be included? Lou said innocently. As a voter, I mean, since I'm here to help. He pointed out. The Trinity hesitated. We see no harm. The cycle includes all, Herb said finally. I vote for poisonous fangs for the clover fox, he said instantly, a window appearing, and he clicked the emerald green, yes. Two for, two against, this is a draw, a draw, a draw, a draw, Herb stuttered. Oh my, I didn't expect that, Nuke cried and quickly pointed to Doctor. Make him vote, he said quickly as a solution. The Doctor stared at Nu with a heavy sigh. He clicked yes when the screen came up, the edges glitchy in panic. Order is restored. The purchase has been done and ended, Herb announced. Nu smiled at himself. Oh no, little friends. The purchases are just beginning, he promised, and opened the menu for the entire dungeon. End of chapter. Interlude Maiden. So, that's why we need your help, so, uh, the blade captain stammered, his scruffy face looking both pale and flustered at the same time. She eyed him with ambivalence. She expressed no real negative emotion, but given her sharp cheekbones and piercing gaze, Isanella Suma knew far too well that she looked as friendly as a winter spirit in the middle of a blizzard down by the strands of the world. That's why we're here, Pumpkin, came the bemused voice of a companion. The man smiled with relief. It's an honor to have both winter and fall maidens helping us out, he gushed breaking his firm facade to look starstruck. Isanella turned away, embarrassed by the title. She might gulp if he asked her for an autograph. So many people wanted her name on a piece of paper or poster or even magically tattooed into their skin. It was insane. Uh, I, I, I didn't mean to overstep, the man said instantly, reading Isanella's posture as displeasure instead of mortification. Ah, don't sweat it. Issy just doesn't like the attention or noise, Umpna said, with a hearty chuckle and slapped Isanella's back with enough force that Isanella winced. The fall maiden wasn't the most physically strongest of the maidens, but that didn't mean that Umpna's power either. That smack was going to leave an imprint. It was the sort of thing that just had to work with when dealing with the half-giantess who hunched at lower seven foot. The strongest of them physically was Brolder, and that was one woman who meant it when she glared at people. Oh, good. Well, uh, we, we have a problem with the dungeon. The blade captain went on awkwardly as Isanella took time to listen to the world around them. It was something that she was slowly beginning to use once more since, well, since she had sung the song to eclipse all noise back home. 
the land around them was north of the Volun capital, a place Fairplay was avoiding due to the recent bloody rise of the new king. His ascension to the throne was mired in all sorts of drama, and the new queen was none too pleased from what Isanella heard. That poor woman. Isanella knew all too well what it felt like to be forced to choose between a demon's bargain and a dead end. She'd be akin to a prisoner in her own home, only free once the kin had his selection of heirs. Isanella sent a prayer to the queen. She prayed that one of the queen's children would avenge the woman if the worst came to pass. Isanella pondered if she could love those children in such a circumstance. It was an odd thought, since Isanella really didn't plan on being a mother, not with her body tainted as it was. Something caught her attention, a sort of buzz in the ground. Isanella followed the disturbance in the magic and manner to the source. The North Shrug was a cold place, but not a winter wonderland, a muddy brown land of chilly water and trees that never seemed to bloom all year long. It was famous for the largest waterfall in the world that flowed over the edge of the world into the abyss below. The river was said to be formed from the world crowd, as if akin to flowing tears, but Isanella hadn't seen the source herself. Rumor was that the crown south of the capital had begun to run dry of manor. The manor vein itself tapped out as if the land had suffered a blockage. Those who ventured too close suffered the grayness. The North Shrug only held one village of note. It sprawled out before Isanella and Umpna, like a god, had spilled their tea leaves chaotically and windswept in a curve. A frontier town of sorts, Dio Brandt, was oddly beautiful. Just enough greenery and life pulled together to give the impression of a fiery spot of growth in the shrug. It was famous for two things. The first was that it was a neutral ground between those coming from the south and the roaming bands of nomad barbarians. Tough warriors who contended with monsters, storms, and traveled along the edge of the world with walls of steel. The second, of course, was the dungeon. Isanella followed the buzzing in the ground to the large ominous sheer cliff wall that rose out of the massive river. The near black rock looked shaped by the streams of lava that hissed into the river, forming large islands that floated off the edge of the world, sometimes clinging to the edge. These pieces slowly expanded the land and were called the shallows by the natives. She's a looker, Umna whistled in appreciation. The dungeon was a wonky square of cliff walls on all sides that were impossible to scale with anything short of the best climbing gear. The top belched black smoke and turned the rain a curious ashen color. There had been rumors the ash was poisonous, but it was just mana cast off. She, Isanella murmured with a question, Izzy, everything natural and beautiful is a woman until otherwise corrected. A raging storm is the wrath of a goddess. The shaking of the ground is the fury of a lady. The fresh rain on the skin is a mother's kiss, Umpna boasted. What about bugs that bite you in warm parts of the world, Isanella said with a raised brow. Those are men, Umpna said, deadly serious before she cracked a grin. Sorry, giant culture. One giantess to every ten males gives us a lot of power, and that means we get to write our myths. Men are powerful mountains. One day, when they make us smile, and buffoons that anthills tower over the next when they upset us, Umpna explained, mostly for the worried plate nearby. Umpna didn't know men. 
Isanella discovered that in the worst way possible one day, when she was sent to find Umtna and found her still asleep, with half the patrons of the bar that she was in last night still in the bed with her. The woman's brazen appreciation of her own body, along with her self-respect about the whole thing, made Isanella a little jealous. She could barely stutter out a greeting before she fled, or the men she was speaking with seemed to think Isanella was going to murder him. Why are we here? Isanella asked, changing the subject far too fast, causing Ugna to smirk. The, the Craven Keep, the man said, turning to the dungeon with a deep scowl. The two maidens turned serious, and everyone put pleasantries aside. Is that its name, or what the men call it? Umpna asked, and the blade hesitated. Does it matter? He finally responded. Isanella looked him in the eye, and he flinched. Intimately, she said quietly, and the man grimaced. It's got a weak avatar. Mostly he uses it to stare at the squads going in and out. There's a warning at the entrance. He reported, and Isanella was surprised. The dungeon only had roughly 25 floors. It had to be very intelligent to already have the theme and form and avatar. She didn't see those dungeons until past 34 mark. The warning says that all those that enter may leave with gold or stay forever as fuel for the Smith's Forge, the man said, sounding like he did not like the name at all. Smith's Forge. And that's a name that you won't accept because, Umpna trailed off, voice expectant. The man looked at her, then at the weapon on her back nervously. Umna could insist all she wanted that there was a giant's toolbox, but the giant thing looked like an ornate coffin made of stone and jewels. It was eye-catching and morbid at the same time. A few of the boys, me included, have dads who are smiths, good hard-working men, and more than a few forced to go into the dungeon because no one wants honest metals but some stupid manner ore or stuff that doesn't behave as it should. A lot of those good men never came back, and left a lot of angry sons, the man said stiffly. And as fair play tended to do, it attracted those with vengeance in their heart. A lot of them were turned away as too violent or still in grief, but it was getting harder to find earnest workers who could put aside such notions. This was why the maidens were a thing. Right, this makes it a coward. How? Umta asked, her jolly voice beginning to turn irate. It only has one monster per floor. It's all traps and cruel enchantments up to the sixth floor, which is all we've managed to breach, the blade fired back, getting worked up. Isanella tried not to frown. A lot of the scouts and blades burned hot when it came to dungeons. There was hardly a cool head in the lower ranks, and the upper ranks were restrained to command centers and more. Just a boss monster, eh? Umpna asked, curious now. Big ones. They're not normal levels of strength that we'd expect from lower floors, the blade agreed grimly. Well, let's see. We're here to get you, sorry lot, to floor 10, then rest us down to you blades. Issy has another job in the hollow grip, and I'm heading to the dry patch to the ruby dungeon. It's supposedly unleashed a new floor, and people have been coming back without faces. Umpna said briskly, making the man blink. Their faces, he echoed. Umpna waved a hand over her own with a dramatic flop. Clean gone. They can breathe somehow, but no face. The dungeon is collecting them in this ornate book that charms people to look at it. Might be the floor boss, the giantess explained. An attention commanding book of faces, the man repeated and looked ill. The two maidens left the man with that image and continued onwards. Isanella was quiet as they walked into Deerrand, getting the usual looks of awe and fear. Just walk on, don't let it affect you. 
She repeated this mantra, and when the crowd threatened to swarm them, Umpna let out an exaggerated growl of annoyance. Isanella hummed her tiny note of thanks, and the giantess pretended not to notice. But she kept Isanella in her shadow, like a protective mountain. This ain't back home, little snowcloud. You can be proud here, Umpna said softly, and Isanella flinched. If she had to admit it, Umpna was her best friend. In the maidens, they got on best. Bilta was terse and polite. It was Goluna who was the problem. The woman was not only some knockout with charm that made her popular, she was also a talented fae-like druid, able to control nature spirits and such to the point that she could make anything beautiful grow with banner command. She even had a private business on the side, a series of inns she planned on spreading around the country to provide comfort, but really, it was to spread the woman's name. Isanella had never met a creature so vain as Gulana. They'd done a few missions together. They always went wrong, and Isanella was greatly ashamed to admit that it was why the once infamous Pestilence Swamp Dungeon needed a full year to recover back to its previous state. Gulana accused Isanella of being bereft of warmth and inability to love anyone. Isanella called her a hack who only cared about using people and flashing her good looks. Things escalated from there, and Isanella learned what happened when the dungeon was overfed manor from two very angry, powerful women. The poor thing, Isanella, took a personal time between jobs to check on it and sneak some unique poisons she found in the world to it as an apology. Some of those poisons snuck into her own food, courtesy of a certain hack. Yet Isanella gave her a constant ringing in the ear for three weeks straight in revenge. Isanella bumped into someone and she blinked. Usually Umpna kept people clear of the street. She looked up and into the dark, deep eyes. Most outsiders do not interest me. You are like the first kiss of winter after a cruel summer. Your song is balm to my burning soul, the man rumbled, and Isanella saw him looking right into her eyes and saw only blunt truth to them. He was a hawking man, decked out in fur of a massive snow bear, the whiteness only making his fiery red hair more striking along his giant muscle. Isanella tilted her head and listened. She expected to hear the same thing as always, an unpleasant chorus of mixed emotions and thoughts aimed at her. Cold, jabbing shards of judgment, fear, and worry. What she got was a single, repeating thump of a drum. A constant, repetitive thunder of existence. It thrummed through her and left her feeling warm. She's single, Umpna announced suddenly, and Isanella's pink flood of confusion and pleasant feelings came down in a crushing mix of horrified embarrassment. The man gave her a small smile. Then the world is foolish. Such a wondrous song should not be sung alone, he said, and Umpna subtly pushed Isanella forward with one hand, causing Isanella to leave skid marks in the soil. Ah, <laughs> Isanella managed to croak out. So we're just two normal ladies out in the town, maybe tackling the dungeon. You know, gal things. Nothing important if you had a suggestion for my friend, Umpna said cheerfully, waving her hand about. The man looked back down at Isanella, but he didn't look down at her. It was nice. Are you normal? He asked curiously. There was no hint of a joke or mocking to his tone. Isanella managed to swallow once. No, she whispered with regret. The man would want a wife that could stay home and be normal. He smiled once more. Neither am I. Now we have a connection. 
If you want to remain around town, perhaps we can build more. I have a duty to attend to first. I won't ask the winter wind to wait on me. I am no fool, he admitted, and his Zanella could only nod at his simplistic words, but they held earnest truth to them. Will I be allowed to chase the wind? He asked himself and walked away, pausing only once to look back and smile. After a few seconds, Umpna spoke up. You're going to need some sexy panties, she concluded. Izanilla snapped her head around to glare at her friend. The half-giantess shrugged. Armored granny panties are good for defending your life against danger. They're also amazingly good at defending your most precious part from the touch of a man, Umpna said dryly. Izanilla could feel her face turning red. They're comfortable. I'll wear scandalous panties when a dungeon makes them a loot drop. I want purpose and style. She's fumed. Umpna perked up suddenly. Oh, now I can knit you one from the sinew of a dragon. Old wives' tales say that it increases a man's vitality when he... Isanella ran off, hands clamped over her ears. Umpna watched a little snow cloud vanish inside a nearby inn. Her smile faded until she was left with a serious gaze. Take the chance, Issy, she whispered. Then Umpna touched her hand to her chest, feeling her core pulse with intense energy. Before winter no longer let you go, she pleaded. She ran her hand down her stomach, where the shattered core of a dead dungeon was implanted into her skin. She knew Izanella had accepted the winter core to handle her uh, curse. Just like Gulana had used it to stop going mad. Just like how Brilda had used it to regulate her uncontrollable power. Not Umpna. Umpna was just an idiot. A foolish idiot who took any chance to be someone else. She tapped her face a few times, psyching herself up. Cheer up, the fall maiden is not too hot or cold. She's just perfect. A smile for all is how I work, she grinned to herself. That's how Umpna Brondo stays a hero, she proclaimed. Present day. Director Riptoy looked over his desk, frowning. It's premature, he admitted. I'm ready, the young woman argued as she stood up. Her form striking as her once brown hair began to turn golden with hues of red. Just peeking out from the casual shirt, three amber shards poked out of his skin. Jum, I understand that you've been waiting for this day. He began, and she looked tense. Like her predecessor, she too was a giant origins. The golden core resonated best with those with giant's blood for some reason. But given what happened, he said, and she growled, looking annoyed. I'm not my mother, she snapped. Riptoy looked on so polite, and his aura shifted to being strict. We know. She was our greatest, our brightest, and when she gave birth to you, you took everything. Her call, her strength, her purpose. I know very well who you are and aren't. I don't blame you as you seem to, he responded firmly. Simmering with anger, Tum stared at the ground. You can still see her, she said finally, and Tum looked up with heat. No, thank you, sir, she responded. I don't want to see a dungeon slave. She can stay in the Craven Keep for all I care. She announced and turned on her heel to leave, shouting after Tum would accomplish nothing, and Riptoy did not even entertain the idea of physically restraining her. It was barbaric to resort to strength to make a point. It was also incorrect to call contracts slaves, perhaps foolish to connect oneself to an alien mind. But in the case of Brilda and Umpna, it was needed. Umpna for her sudden collapsing soul after the birth of her beloved daughter, and Brilda because not even one core was enough to drain her of explosive power. Trying to tell Tum this, 
He was an exercise in patience. The girl didn't even want to use her actual name, resorting to the giant language to make one of her own. Honestly, is there nothing wrong with Isisuma? Ungna wasn't the best with names. If it was a boy she had, she wanted to call it Brilly Ghoul. She leaned back in the chair. She never told Rukdoy who the father was. A hunk up north, or was it his brother? She would often joke. Still, it would be good to have a functioning maiden again, since Riptoy had put in extra steps to protect dungeons from being leached or shattered along the king's law. Dead dungeon calls were a lot rarer these days. New maidens could not be made on a dime, and the missing calls of winter and spring were officially missing, unofficially given away. He couldn't bear to shatter Isanella's happiness nor Gulana's sacrifice. Rilda's call kept her alive and Riptoy would sooner cut off his own hand than demand that call back. This was a problem for someone on the board of directors. Kayleen, the uprising star, insisted the maidens were paramount to their company. The man was a sop and Riptoy found him as charming as a doorstopper and as emotionally engaging as one. If there was one thing Riptoy did resent Umpna for, it was for discovering the art of seed weapons all those years ago up north. It was when Riptoy's dream shattered like a damaged dungeon core. The Craven Keep. What a foolish name. The Smith's Forge was correct in all its meaning. Beck, you, for taking Umner away from us. And thank you for keeping her alive. Director Riptoy of Fairplay toasted an empty glass to the northern direction of his building. It was thanks to Umpner sneaking new designs out of the Smith's Forge that gave Fairplay a leg up. She wanted all the chances for her daughter to survive any dungeon to be important. The company's symbol was even based on her, working together with the power of the dungeon to keep the dream alive. Kayleen and his ilk had tainted even that. Frowning, he felt a strange tug as if a string was being pulled and he jerked out of his chair in surprise. He looked back at the nearby mirror and instead of his reflection, Riptoy saw silver streams of light blowing into the air. Director Riptoy of the Fair Play Company bent the knee before the mirror. Send the maiden. This dungeon proves to be promising. The command was said and Riptoy blinked, a light in his eyes fading. He stood up slowly. What was I doing? He asked aloud and eyed his reflection, noticing he was a bit pale looking. He thought about Tum. Perhaps the little dungeon to break her in would ease off some of the built-up tension. Despite her temper, it would reassure him that the maiden was in the same town as his boy. It was a protection without saying it was. But why did the entire situation make him feel uneasy despite his heart being set on the idea? Riptoy didn't know. Was it really his heart? Was his core reacting to something after so many years of being utterly dead? Questions upon questions. Alas, no answers to be had. End of chapter Chapter 168 Shortcuts Cut Short Is it so weird? A, a room to honor people? Lim asked and Yatina hesitated. There was no real good way to say what she was about to say next. Yes, even the most advanced dungeons we know of lack what we would consider empathy. It's just not known for dungeons of any age to ever care about those who enter it, Yatina admitted, as she gripped the mana charm that kept her from throwing her guts up. The manor in the air indicated the dungeon was many things. Between the detailed entrance, the feeling, and more, it all pointed to everything in this dungeon being more compacted 
pushing the limit. There really was no better word for it other than this dungeon felt thick. Captain Yutina, we should move on, their escort said gruffly behind them. Yutina resisted the urge to turn and hiss like a feral cat. She did not enjoy being rushed into research by dolts who could swing a sword and not a lot else. A moment please, Captain. Every discovery made could change how we approach this dungeon, she said back to the man watching them. Yatina didn't like the new captain, due to the sheer size of Fairplay. It wasn't uncommon for some of their members to never have met each other before an operation brought them together. Captain Alatori was one such person. If Lim was her promising mind, ready to accept the world that existed outside of his own viewpoint, this Alatori was a steel trap rusted over by years of loss and bitterness. As the Blade Captain, my authority supersedes your own whilst in this dungeon. We need to move on. There is far more for you to see, more things you need to be informed on so we can be ready, he said, and Yutina narrowed her eyes. The man was well versed in the fact that the dungeon was always listening. What he wasn't saying was that he wanted Yutina to identify as many weaknesses as possible to set the stage for an assault by an expert squad. It was an extreme even to be considering such an option, but this dungeon was hardly normal. Normal or not, Yatina would do her best. It was down to her to walk a fine line between revealing too much or too little. One meant the dungeon would be laid bare and relationships they had courted with the village might be soured because of them. The other was a good man and woman who could possibly be seriously hurt in a misunderstanding. This was why she didn't like people getting close. They died due to being stupid or left her after hurting her. Moving down the hall, the men halted before the room decorated in a wonderful spider silk garden. Avoid it. I don't want to deal with the Phantom Spider and Captain Yutina here. Her time is too important to see you all being flung about like damn toys. Cut down the only webs that absolutely need to be, Alatori told his squad, who moved with a practice grace. Yutina stopped to admire the web, enjoyed how it felt more like thread than web, bouncing off her fingers rather than clinging to it. The slight touch sent a tremble across the room, which Yutina watched as it all seemed to meet in the ceiling near the far corner. If she was a gambling woman, she'd bet that that was where the queen of the Stomain resided. Yutina could only imagine how beautiful the monster was. It wasn't often that a dungeon had a diverse ecosystem like this on the first floor. On the way past, she took some berries and quietly asked Lim to attune them to himself. The blank look that she got in return made her remember that Lim had been on the scout teams. High numbers, even higher turnaround. Focus your mana on them, allow it to soak into it completely until it feels like your finger or hair. Then you sort of just pull it back to you. Don't do too many or you'll exhaust yourself, she warned. Yutina was oversimplifying it, but Lim didn't need to know that. There were a dozen different ways to make dungeon items real. The more complex or magical an item or material was, the more mana and experience the gatherer needed. Processing salt from the coastal or sea dungeons was considered a closely guarded secret of the culinary guild, and people paid through their teeth to get pure enough salt in a timely manner. This was why there existed botany guilds, minor guilds, mason guilds, and more. Some guilds were so specialized their methods could only work on a single dungeon. These sects were extremely insular, and Yatina heard their methods of inducting outsiders that made it past their lofty doors were brutal. They all had names based on the dungeon they worked with and the nature of their experts. Yudina only knew one near Fairplay HQ by name. 
They lived on the peninsula to the north and were called the Raging Storm Sect. Aspiring members passed through the city on their way to the sect every year. Most of them returned harrowed beyond their years. They paused at an intersection when Yatina saw beyond an open door that there was a massive lake straight ahead. She felt her excitement spark, but Alatori cut a path off before she could take steps inside. The room hasn't been fully scouted yet. Our sensors think that there might be a secret passage in the room, but it's not safe. We want to focus on the main path today, he warned, and Yatina pulled Lim into view. I have a guard, she insisted. Alatori looked unmoved by Lim's nervous stature. Yatina also didn't want to be shown up by a stupid sensor. Children of accomplished dungeon delvers, they had a way of seeing dungeons that they couldn't explain to others. They spoke of stars and lines that connected all to titans of light. Not that Yatina did not believe them, but they were all sort of smug, and Yatina found they tended to feel like the elite fair play, premium members. On a less kind days, Yatina called them blatant cheaters, who could see through a dungeon's efforts and peek under the table to see how it was all worked. Lazy was another good word for them. However, something Elatory said caught her attention now that she thought about it. Your senses think, she asked, trying not to sound coyly amused. Their vision is clouded. The dungeon lines are unlike anything they've seen before. They said it's like trying to read a sea during the storm, Alatori reported as he looked around, his pale features almost shining in the gloom. Imagine having vision problems, Yatina said casually as a magic orb moved in her eye socket. To her delight, Alatori looked away uncomfortably. Now look at the lake and determine if it's important, she said and moved past the man with the limb at his side. She tapped on the side of her head. Come on, little guy, time to earn your rent, she muttered, getting a confused look from Lun. Her eye was a bit of a clunky thing. Still, she couldn't complain when it let her see things that she would never have seen otherwise. Unlike senses, Etina didn't see under the facade of dungeons or through their tricks. No, this sight was more of a monkey's paw. When she got the thing, she should have been more careful when she told it to always show her the truth. It was a childish whim from a hurt child in Utina's defense. The lake began to glow as a massive silver and gold lights danced underneath like playful stars. She slowly watched as the sky seemed to be dancing between the fake sun and the moon in the odd dance. She absolutely avoided looking at Lim or the others with her eyes. She didn't look at people. They were either devastatingly beautiful all beautifully devastating. Slowly, she looked over the pre-seat campsite, getting a warm glow of welcome from it. Past rocks and grass that radiated a gentle peace, far over the lake until her eyes landed on the massive crimson eye staring back at her. A horrible serpentine feathered dragon was coiled around a throne of knives, each tip tapping the dragon's scale in a cruel musical note of a long flowing mane reminded Yatina of black seaweed. The thing should not have fit in the room, but the eye of truth didn't really concern itself with geometry or space so much as being truthful. Slowly, the creature spread its wings and a glint of silver flashed around its head, showing a crown woven in the shape of talons clasped together. The creature leaned down and Yatina couldn't move. It opens its mouth, revealing fangs sharper than knives it collected. I will spare your mortal soul, it rasped, and Yatina wasn't breathing. For that knife on the boy's leg, it finished in an almost honking purr. The magic of the eye died down, 
and she was left staring across the lake at a much smaller duck. However, Yetina calmly accepted that she was staring at a potential superboss hidden in plain sight and looked at Lim's knife, holding it aloft. A knife, a knife for our safe passage, she croaked. Captain, Alatori whispered, concerned as he moved to cover her with his sword half-drawn. I swear to whatever god you believe in that if you upset that duck, I will lock you in here with it after I run, Yetina hissed, her magical eye flashing. Alatori gaped, then took three steps back. Putting the knife down on the nearby rock, she watched the creature as it weighed the offering from across the lake. Yetina knew that such a paltry distance meant nothing to the duck. It announced and buried its head into its wing to go to sleep. Her heart started beating again. Safety. Yetina needed to order a crate of knives from Fairplay. She needed to study this creature, with its permission, of course. Her scientific soul was in heaven. This could be the legendary Dark Drake, a species thought only to rise up every thousand years in migration when the demon world aligned with their world. The trail of destruction left behind them was said to be the stuff of legends. How was it here? It took incredible mana and managed to summon something so powerful. How did anyone summon a Dark Drake? Quiss paused as he looked down at a bunch of fair play people getting grifted by Grimm. Dungeon maps, complete with side tunnels, deluxe maps with two secret passages available on request, price non-negotiable, the boy howled. People gathered around, hustling to be the one with the upper hand. He stepped closer so that only Glim could see him when he asked his question. Why are several of the rooms incomplete or just wrong? He asked, and Grim shot him a grin. Ah, I'll finish it eventually. It's a promise to my customers who brought it regardless, he said simply. And if they happen to get lost or traumatized, Quiz raised an eyebrow. Sounds like a grim tale, the boy said without thinking, then paused and then cursed himself. Someone elbowed Quiz in the stomach to get closer to the maps, and he almost burned the fair play employee to ashes in reflex when he twisted his tongue harshly in a folded fork motion. Duck, he snarled, and a small black duck appeared in a poof of smoke on the grim's table. That looks sort of familiar. Someone muttered as Grim threw himself over the fence with these earnings. If you like Grim Tales, you'll love Duck Tales, he called back to them a second later. I don't even get that joke, he cursed himself as he fled. Quiz picked the duck up and looked pensive. He looked docile, but curious thing to the pub. Where Seth was nursing a drink of Happy Nina, he saw Quiz began to smile, then spotted the duck. The blackest of undays are returned. Many not knowing will perish, he said, sliding under the table with a pale expression. Months with him, Happy Nina beamed. When I summon three black ducks in a row, it means I accidentally started their migration early again, Quiz said grumpily. What happened last time? Happy Nina asked as Sad Nina sobbed her way through a sink full of dishes nearby. Quiz pointed to the world map on the pub's wall and the very southeastern island. That happened. If I summon two more dark ducks, then it's going to be a repeat, he said sullenly, as he told the bartender to send over a shot of whatever was going out of date. Isn't that fun land? Happy Nina asked, tilting her head, still smiling. Quiz hated that name. Fun land was short for Funeral Island. It was a home to five compact dungeons that sprung up after Quiz set off for migration. The land was still covered in battle scars and rumors had sprung up that something else had been imprisoned there. Well, if this is the first one, you still need to summon two more, right? You just have to be careful. 
Happy Nina nodded seriously, and Quiz felt a small smile tug on his face as he turned around to feed the duck. But he found it was gone. Oh, damn it! He sighed and turned, running right into Rudy's puffed-out chest. Duck! He screeched in surprise as it snuck up on him, and poof went on the table, and the second black duck appeared, confused before eating some of Nina's fries. Oh, we're so ducked! Happy Nina clapped her hands with a smile of terror. Delta wanted to stalk, uh, follow this new woman with interest, but she was being called by Wyam, of all people. Don't let her or her little friend die, she told Maestro, who had eyes all over the floor. It didn't take long for her to arrive at Wyam's bathroom, to see the tree looking thoughtful and oddly worried. Miran, Delta called, from the entrance with a low grunt, then grinned to herself. It was impossible to give her monsters actual space, since she was all the spaces in the walls, but a little effort never hurt anyone. Wyan looked and absentmindedly beckoned her closer. I've been having thoughts since we arrived back from that dingy sad salt cave, she began, her voice a slow drawl. Foody, his name is Foody, Dalta reminded her, but Wyan didn't seem to hear. Ah, I've come to the conclusion that I may be suffering from a, a mortal case of boredom, Wyam admitted, and she'd seen pain to actually say it aloud. But all you did was train a few salt bats to attack and kick a turtle, Delta said, moist incredulous. And it was glorious, Wyam threw her arms up, her very slender arms ending in dozens of branches that all swished as she moved. Delta could argue, but she had a point. Wyam hardly got any time to be her gentle self to adventurers. The first floor was too good. Delta tried to avoid feeling too smug about that as pride went before the fall into something that would make her scream. Think, 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 Delta mused, tapping her head as she thought of ideas. If you ask me for any honey for your rambly tummy, I'll be the first boss monster to be fired for slapping their dungeon call, Wyam said dryly. An idea came to her. It was so simple, yet also so slimy that it made a grimace. Wyam, it's time I become something I swore to never tolerate. She inhaled, trying to ready herself for what she was about to say. Desirable, Wyam offered, and Delta opened her mouth, then closed it for a few moments. It's not a crime to put video games and my students first before romance. If I wanted someone to be with, I'd have to actually look outside of my romance books, Delta said and blinked. That was a new semi-memory. She didn't have a special someone, that oddly made her feel a little bit better after being here. I had Jack bring me some of those books from the third floor. I would not want the poor sweet Dio to even glimpse the covers, Wyam said with a sly smirk. It's not dirty books, it's mature reading material, Delta said with an indifferent shrug. Mature was books one to three, that one series. Deviant came into the picture from books four to nineteen, Wyam said, and she sounded like she shamelessly read through them all in one sitting. Anyway, Delta interrupted, her neck burning with blush. What if I open up Quee's entrance? It gets past Remy's circus to the outside, she explained, and Wyam frowned, turning serious as she turned the idea over. Dangerous. We cannot risk the Honorable Sir Fran being simply skipped, Wyam said, sounding more concerned about her darling knight than any of the actual first floor. I agree, but if the entrance fee is something that even Fairplay might balk at paying, a ticket that's only gets cheaper every time you reach Fran's room, and even cheaper if you win, Delta suggested. 
The price would have to be something that even they wouldn't risk losing out on, Rhymes said, bending her knees to sweep low to the ground. Dalta blinked and then began to smile as something occurred to her. Captain, you shouldn't, Lim said, and Yatina pulled her head out of the mud, filling the room with a blink. Lim, this mud is amazing. It's rich in helpful minerals and perfect temperature for usage on skin, she proclaimed, making him manner infuse a jar of the stuff so she could take it back to her lab to study. It's mud. She's mucking around like a pig, someone muttered in the group behind them. Lim turned with anger in his eyes, but Yatina touched his arm. Alatori turned once and seemed to glare at one man. You can retreat by yourself. I don't care about your opinions, but you will respect the chain of command, he said coldly. But the ducks are... Go! Alatori's voice was even colder now. I'm no fainting damsel, Alatori. I can take a mean comment from a nobody meathead, Yatina said as she stood up, wiping her face of the wonderful mud. Lum eyed the goop and would try to indulge his captain as she asked him to join her in having a mud facial later. If he is willing to mouth off to you within earshot, I don't doubt that he has comments about me in private. I don't need insubordination from meatheads, as you call them, Alatori said factually. The rest of his men seemed split in two opinions. The older, loyal sort who nodded compared to the younger, more nervous followers. What's a little mud on your face compared to the marvels we could bring to the world, Yatina said with a smile, and Lim eyed the mud once more, trying to imagine how the world looked to his captain. He sort of wanted to have that excitement for things as she did. The dungeon began shaking, and everyone made rough groups of three, spreading out as much of the room and corridor allowed. What's going on? Lim called, and Yatina steadied him with one hand as the shaking slowly subsided. Did uh, it form a new floor? One of the blades called in alarm. There was no mana search. We'd all be in our butts if there was a new floor, Lim called, and Yatina shot him a bright smile to show her happiness that he was already picking up her lessons. Lim flushed and tried not to grin like an idiot in return. We're leaving. I'm taking no risks, Alatori commanded, and there was no argument from Yatina, which must have meant that it was serious. Leaving felt too quick, as if the dungeon was helping them hurry along. As the group fled the entrance to regroup with the waiting Fairplay members, they all came to a stop as something rose into the air far in the forest behind the dungeon. At first, it was just a pillar of orange manor that spiked into the sky until it began to take a shape of a tree line. Impossible, Yatina whispered aloud, in such a way that her excitement and grin were just as hard to ignore. The orange manor faded until a solid large tree, far bigger than any around, loomed like a giant in the distance. The tree had a strange curve to it, not anything a storm would have caused, but if Yatina blurred her eyesight just a little, it looked like a woman blowing a kiss to the world. A barely visible path encircled the tree, weaving in front and out of dangerous brambles that overgrew the ground all around the base. Yatina insisted that she be a part of the first expedition and Alatori was too shaken to disagree. He too knew what it meant for this dungeon to have a second entrance of sorts. Approaching the tree wasn't hard, but one wrong path or misstep had people buried up to their thighs in wicked thorns that sometimes grazed, sometimes nicked. Only the truly hasty got stabbed by them. Halfway up the tree, roughly where a heart would be on a vaguely human-shaped tree, was a round wooden room built into the tree itself. 
A massive set of double doors greeted them with an intricate carving of a smiling woman holding them closed, with her arms are curved around the wood itself. In sunlight, the woman might have been charming or approachable, but in the setting sun, her smile took on an edge as wicked as the thorns that grew all around them. There was a sort of basin set next to the middle of the room with roots and branches growing up to keep it locked in place. The wine room looked old but clean. Yatina was having a fan herself with a fresh notebook at all she was seeing. She nearly cracked the spine when she saw the inscription by the basin. The second floor wants the pleasure of your company, but there shall be no poaching of the swift Sir Fran. To use this entrance, one must test themselves repeatedly against the first floor, each lap lowering the price of entry, Yatina whispered as she wrote this all down. The writing curved along the room of the basin, so she had to start pacing around in sync with her words. For those who have not even tried, the price is simple. You, Yatina stopped cold and stared for a long moment, her mouth dropping open. The words glinted back at her, unmoving and unashamed. Return in one year and be assigned to a dungeon of Delta's choosing as a contract, Yatina finished. The rest of the group froze at the announcement. It can't enforce that, someone said, and around that basin, symbols began to appear. The universal sitchin of a dungeon core, a glowing circle, that strange thick-sided triangle. She bent down and allowed her eyes to gaze at the symbol. Utter protection, safety, and determination. McCann, if you use this basin, your soul will enter a contract that you won't be breaking without the help of an archmage and a few others, she warned. Who would pay that? Someone demanded, and there was a noise as someone entered the space. Excuse me, a young boy said with an unnaturally serious face. He had a sword in his hip, and despite his smaller stature, he had an aura of power. He walked in, and to Yutina's shock, he put his hand in the basin without warning, causing the statue of the smirking woman to peel her arms back and the heavy doors to open. There was a strange billowing white mist obscuring the other side to Yutina, and likely any who had yet to pay the price. Who are you? Yatina asked, getting a bit worried about the youth in this town. Alpha, he said slowly, as if listening to someone coming from the tunnel. He eyed Yatina with more attention than anyone else. Do you know what you just paid? One of the blades hissed, fear on his face. The boy known as Alpha looked at him with an indifferent expression. Nothing. The price is for those yet to beat the first floor or make serious attempts. I've been to the third floor already. I have a free pass, he said simply and there was a thick silence that followed that statement. You're just a boy, a large man said, looking furious at the statement. Alpha shrugged and turned away. This dungeon just wants to lure children in to feast on them. You're being used by a heartless demon, the man spat. The boy paused, then lowered his hand that he was raising to the mist gate. The air in the room changed, and even Yatina, who had no core, could feel the whispers of magic picking up. Yatina had to apologize for Fairplay's rude behavior when the boy turned, his calm eyes taking on a hard edge. He pulled his sword free and buried it in front of the gate, the tip sliding into the floor like a hot knife through butter. Pull this free, and I'll personally vouch for you and allow you to avoid paying the price. Fail, and the sword will bar you from ever using this entrance, no matter how many times you complete the first floor, he said, his tone firm. The scout swaggered forth and put his hand on the pommel and pulled. Nothing happened. Yatina watched with both deep curiosity and disbelief as the man turned red from the effort as he lifted with his knees in both hands. 
Her eyes said the sword hadn't been enchanted. It was just that heavy. The scout fell back, his hands red and blistered from the sheer raw tugging he had done. Three of the scouts tried to lift it together, but it still didn't bulge. Eugenia shot Alpha a look, and her eye returned a confusing sight. She was willing to risk looking at someone to get some answers. He was a human being, but there was something beyond strange with his self. His core wasn't just in his chest, deep inside, but it was like his flesh and core had been perfectly merged. Potential could form at any point of his body. No part of Alpha was left untouched, and the sight was beautiful. If fair play and his core armaments were a harrowing hacking of the self into a morbid tool, Alpha was evolution of self, a being in sync with the concept of potential. The boy reached forward and his power, contained tightly like a coiled spring, lifted his sword easily and turned to leave. Wait, Yutina called, and Alpha paused before looking back. You can visit the dungeon and ask to be shown around. Delta wouldn't lie or even need to. You'd be safe and... You'd like it, he said finally, and walked through the mist. The white swirling barrier rippled once before the doors closed behind him. Yutina stared for a while before an odd thought crossed her mind. An extremely evolved dungeon happened to befriend what Utina was sure was the world's most evolved human being. That couldn't be a coincidence. Tricks! Just tricks! The scout from earlier told himself as he stared at his hands. Utina knew that once reports made their way back to HQ, she might not be allowed to continue to study the dungeon, and it could be handed over to her more senior researchers. The idea made her feel dread. There was too much happening here, and she would be damned if some stuffy old guy got a miracle. Captain, someone yelled as Yutina turned to the basin and slammed her hand into it. Now she had the whole year to study this dungeon and her ties to it. After that, she would get to see how this contract business worked. If her sister did it, then Yutina supposed it had to have some massive benefit. Study dungeons, stick it to the smug senior staff understand her sister, and keep herself involved in all the things. Yutina was quite proud of how many birds she was killing with one stone. From the basin, black thorns made of ink and manna rushed up her arm and into her chest, where her core would be, nestling deep in the remains like a warm snake. The contract failed to find purchase, going dormant seconds later, meaning Yutina had found a massive loophole in the system. But she didn't really have to tell anyone about that, especially her bosses. It was sad that she couldn't do a single drop of magic, but the plus of being a null was that magic just struggled to do anything to her in return. The more finicky and ritualistic it was, the more Yutina just walked all over it. Pure mana attacks were the worst, like dungeon air, but Yutina was happy to glue herself to limb and have the poor lad haul her near-dead corpse around so that she could study the dungeon. Science would wait for no one and Yutina was just had been handed a golden ticket to do all the science. Um, I do this so you don't have to, she told the shell-shocked team that had been escorting her. Why? a faint voice asked. We do what we must, she said, trying to sound upset so people wouldn't think they were too crazy. Because I can, she ended weakly. Captain Yutina, someone said with an odd tone, and the others moved forward to bow their heads in respect. Yutina would let them think she took one for the team. But the only team that she was on was Team Science and sometimes Team Lim. The doors opened once more and Yatina entered the mist, hoping her mana ward would hold. As soon as she was on the other side, Yatina began to hop in place with pure excitement. For science and being selfish, she cried and took off.
End of chapter. Chapter 169. There'll be dragons and worse, mushrooms. No land's life had not been easy since leaving Durance. The tax system of Villan was not a simple beast, and it only grew more aggravating once dungeons got involved. There was a saying amongst the bankers and taxmen about dungeons. Trying to fit a dungeon into an existing tax code is like asking for a task that never ends. However, it was not the dungeon's fault entirely that Noland was developing grey hairs by the minute. So, my father would happily accept you into the silver-ranked club. Very affluent. It's a fair trade. A young yun with slicked black hair and a winning smile told Nerland, who was trying to eat a greasy sandwich in peace. Psh, you mean the bottom of silver-ranked. You're basically a bronzer, another argued as he tried to flash his credentials. Ignore them, they'll go away, Nolan repeated like a mantra to himself. The dungeon report he made was finally making its rounds in the paperwork ecosystem. Aside from that, knowing that Princess Surma herself was going to make a royal challenge endurance made the value of the dungeon skyrocket. There were also other factors in play. Someone with a lot of cash was setting up to buy all the land around Durance. The amount was monstrous, but the tender was legal, and that was all Nolan cared about. It did mean that Nolan was in a position to shoot up from his bronze tier membership as a member of the bank to someone with actual power. Nolan honestly didn't want it. He liked wandering the country and discussing business with people, making sure the country wasn't being drained by the ill-intentioned while also making sure the people got their due rewards. A simple overtax being fixed could make someone's month. Those with aspirations were jockeying to take the dungeon off Nolan's hands, but he was uneasy with the idea. These were the sort of young bucks to invest too quickly in adventure guilds, halls, or hotels, or other such nonsense. The noise quieted down, and the crowd of wannabe big shots vanished as someone took the seat opposite of Nolan. Ah, oh, to be young, said a smooth voice, and Nolan tried to swallow his sandwich, but was having trouble due to his shock at who was across from him. Serona, he tried to bow and not splatter crumbs all over the man's suit, which looked to be something he picked off the charity sale rack. The man had almost straight silver hair from being nearly seventy, but despite that, he had the posture and energy of someone half his age. The clear green eyes were assessing, but not judgmental. Noland had never seen the man up close since he was always surrounded by people, needing numerous snap judgment calls on investments. You may call me Ned, the owner said kindly, and Noland felt like he no sooner could do that than spontaneously fly. Ned Happy was the sort of man who seemed to wear cheap but comfortable to a personal level. The man had revolutionized Verloon's banking system since before Noland had even been born. Some say that before Ned and his brother, the kingdom's taxation was predatory beyond belief. It was one of the many civil wars between the kingdom's previous king and queen. The pauper king who fought for the rights, and the gold queen who said, let them eat grilled pork. Sir, what can I do for you? Noanant asked, feeling a bit of dread in his stomach. This felt bigger than he was. Durance, you'll be residing there in the future? Ned asked as he laid his hands on his lap. Nearby, a crowd of people wanted to draw closer to over here, but no one committed crimes in the bank. Money talked, and it talked to Ned Happy. Uh, he, yes, sir. 
I, I leave in a few days, Nolan said, and watched as Ned smiled at something, a private joke, perhaps. Would you be willing to do me two favors that fall outside of your responsibilities? Ned asked, and Nolan blinked twice before his brain made him nod slowly. Ned Happy didn't do favors as far as Nolan knew. The favors Ned could grant could keep smaller kingdoms afloat. Could you tell my brother, if he's awake, that the Fun Island investment remains strong, but could use a healthy injection of resources? Ned said, and Nolan didn't get anything about that statement. Fun Island sounded familiar, but it escaped Nolan's grasp for now. And the second, he asked, almost not sure if he wanted to hear the next request. Something occurred to him, and he blurted out something that should have gotten him fired. Wait, didn't your brother die when he cut off the Gold Queen's hand when she, uh, used, uh, he trailed off, and he could feel himself going pale at his outburst. He died, yes, but he had a fantastic life insurance. No sooner did he die than he popped out of his own skin as a prattling bag of bones. I was furious because I opted for the spectral ghost package, but I didn't think about the ability to wear size zero suits. I could save so much money, he sighed. Nolan supposed being a spirit bound to a bank as an eternal owner might have a few issues. But saving money and asking a necromancer makes spur clothes never occurred to Noland. But I need you to get the last 20 years worth of paperwork from the local banker insurance. I recruited him when he proved to be good at sniffing out blood money. But even I have to say that 20 years is long overdue for a report, Ned huffed aloud. I don't remember a bank insurance, Nolan muttered to himself. Not surprising. The locals don't trust the establishment, so to speak. I dare say that Vaughn has very little to do in his time there, Ned explained, and Nolan raised an eyebrow at this. Uh, forgive me for my lack of insight, but then why have a bank there at all, Nolan questioned. Ned smiled. Because the town must have a bank, he said, and that told Nolan nothing. Even if the bank serves no other purpose than to deposit taxes, Nolan asked, just to be sure he understood. What do you know of the Grey? Ned asked suddenly, and Nolan blinked at the change of subject. Not much other than common knowledge. When someone lives in a manor barren space for a time, their soul and core withers. They become shells of their former selves, only able to repeat familiar patterns or display their most basic traits, Nolan reported. That sounded right in his head. Quite. It is a bit deeper than that. It's death, the visible show of death of South. Most people can live five, maybe six years in such a state before they crumble. But Durance survived nearly twenty. Do you know how? He questioned, and Nolan wasn't about to say he knew anything about death other than funeral costs. They created a simple, a tomb, a near-sentient artificial afterlife that suspended them from breaking down. My lad, Durance is not simply a town, Ned said, his green eyes twinkling. It's a state of being. And a town needs a bank to play its part, Nolan muttered. He really had a bad feeling about this town. New knew something wasn't right with these Seahakens the moment they invaded the dungeon once more with greedy clicks, tearing all they could put into bags. It reminded him of something, but he couldn't quite place it as they slaughtered their way through Trinity's first floor with ease. They come again, Herb said, and Carnage let out a snarl. 
Laverne's floor was a symbol of fame, and even the newly upgraded Clover Foxes only slowed the few Seahagens down slightly. They had tremendous vitality and strength. They cleaved the massive bone wolf boss, a giant lupin with flowers and vines growing out of his exposed ribcage. New liked it on principle, but he couldn't help but think that Delta would have given it a cool werewolf transformation or the ability to grow minions. What do they want? New asked the Trinity as Doctor continued to harvest samples of the dungeon's rarest supplies to see what could possibly be done for upgrades. Yes, Florida said simply. Dungeon calls? Doctor asked curiously. There was another on this island. A dungeon of earth and golems. They took its car and used it to widen the crack. Herb explained softly. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, the crack, New asked as the invaders moved through the second floor. Unlike Delta's dungeon, these floors were more of a slow transition. The second wasn't that different from the first, other than turning from grass to forest to something closer to marshland. The pool to the deep, a place where seeds grow out of control. Darkness and void, Herb explained. Death and destruction, the coming predator, Carnage added. The end. Florida finished. New snapped his attention back to the Seahagen and did his best to peer into them, seeing the seats were engorged, dark and pulsating. Excuse me, I'll be right back, New said tightly and vanished. Seconds later, he dropped a startled Maharia onto the dungeon floor. Too little mana, the fairy wheezed. We have nearly nineteen floors, Herb said, confused, and Maharia glared at the core. Those are rookie numbers, she accused, looking exhausted. Who are they? New asked, steering them back onto the subject, and Maharia closed her eyes, allowing New to guide her senses. It didn't take long for her to also feel the sea aching. Fish people, if I had to guess, the fairy lich muttered. They're a part of your cult, Lou said with a terse tone, and Maharia scoffed. First, don't be cultist. Not all cult people know one another. Second, I wouldn't let those losers into my group. They smell worse than death, Maharia said with a scoff. They worship the silence, Doctor interrupted. That's like saying, oh no, they worship the sun. My group, even with the purest of the lost brother, was far from the first or last of its kind to stare into the void and seek glory in the dark, Maharia said stiffly. But you could use some lingo to confuse them or make them stop, New asked, trying to contain his hope that he could have a group of murder fish people serving him and Trinity. Maharia looked like she wasn't getting paid enough for this and wanted to object but sighed. I was getting bored of watching Fairplay run into the same traps over and over anyway, she muttered, before straightening up. Okay, which echo are they worshipping? She asked the room, and blank faces looked back at her. New felt the word itch in his mind. Maharia rubbed the bridge of her fake nose. Her skin was illusionary at best. I can't believe you and Delta got this far, she announced before clearing her throat. Sounding bright and bubbly, like she was about to explain a safety procedure on a fast transport. When the lost brother fell into the void, I created what were known as Echoes. They're all the brother, but each one is a distortion, a form that wasn't wrong but wasn't true either. The closest Echo to have existed was my son, the one whom I served, uh, served, Maharia said, looking a little sad at her own words before she perked up. 
Why not pray to the directly to the Corvine? Doctor asked, fascinated. Maharia smiled darkly. Might as well pray to a storm or a landslide. The lost brother is not ready to regain himself, so his echoes serve as his intermediaries. Each one has a slightly different flavor. Some are easier to connect to if they match your own point of view. The sun, for all occasions, Maharia giggled. So, this is a cult of the fish people serve as the same god, but their version could be enjoying a hot dog over a burger, Lou said, wondering why this was bugging him. Echoes. Something about that word triggered something in his system. More like they were vicious and died in combat until their seeds sprouted. And as they had offspring, those seeds refined themselves until one of them was ripe enough to allow an echo to get a foothold in this world. It's not so different from how the sister allowed the gods to be called through stars, Maharia said, sounding bored now. I don't think those gods caused as much suffering as these echoes, Lu said, and Maharia's calm expression turned furious. Do not speak such garbage around me. The gods summoned can be as destructive as any echo twisted through these fools, Maharia snarled, her eyes flashing. She turned around. The little brother was meant to be here. Those invaders were let in because the child gods didn't care to think about the consequences, the fairy said finally, looking down. Too many echoes exist at the same time in this world. They seek each other and feast until the new beings arises from their corpses, Lou said slowly, his voice distance, and Maharia snapped her head around, surprise clear in her face. Curious knowledge for a system pop-up box, she said slowly, and Lou didn't look at her. Just information in the system, if you know where to look, he said stiffly, a bold-faced lie. He had no clue where that information had come from. Do you know of the different echoes? Noctis said after a moment, and Maharia looked at him coolly and nodded. I know, Sam. A lot can happen in the shadows, so many could be gone or evolved. My son, you know where he is, of course. There was the great Virum Eral, which was contained by the great seal far away. I heard Lestus and Lassus were caught in the middle of eating each other and contained. There are dozens more, but you can't expect me to have kept up with them, Maharia said. Sea Hagen's invading, Carnage interrupted, annoyed. They'd made it to the fourth floor already, and only had two injured of their team of twenty. I can deal with them, Maharia offered, checking out her nails and Trinity glowed. Unnatural aid we need not. Its temperament as foul as its form, they spoke as one. Mahari turned to the doctor, then looked back at the core in the skull. That's harsh. He's just a gargoyle, she said, mock offended. Maharia, go. Repel them. Do not kill them for now. Trinity needs to learn to be killing machine with my guidance, he instructed. And the lich's eyes lit up. Oh, can I help? I love murder, she said, bouncing in the air with excitement. Isn't that how you ended up in this predicament in the first place? Doctor asked casually. I'm a creature of habit, Maharia said as she floated off down the hallway. Bloody habits. Okay, play it cool, don't panic, just be natural and easygoing, but, but not so relaxed that you come off as rude. And definitely don't mention the bees or the pygmies just yet, Delta said to Alpha, who slowly blinked at her as the strange woman continued to hug the wall along the tunnel stopping every once in a while to remark on the increasing dungeon alterations. Be cool, but relaxed, but polite, but vague, Alpha repeated firmly. Yes, no, be yourself, you're amazing, but don't panic. Human interaction isn't scary or hard, Delta said quickly, beginning to puff out her cheeks in panic. Alpha was getting mixed messages, but decided that he got the gist of it. 
Welcome, he said, and the Lady Yatina turned to him. Her human eye looked dilated, and her magic eye was rolling in her head with excitement. Don't mind me, I, I was... You offered me a tour, correct? Uh, do, do I have your, your word of protection? Do, do I need to sign in blood somewhere? The woman asked rapidly, her pen and notebook ready in her hands. Alpha was struck between the hyperventilating Delta and the intense Yatina. Lucky him. Why blood? he asked, confused. He had a gold-grade ritual level skill, but he didn't know so much about the whys and hows of it. Uh, blood carries residue of one's core. It, it can be used as an intrinsic link to that person. That's how contracts of all kinds work, she gasped. But you don't have a seed, he said, and she wrote that down. Delta gaped at him, and Alpha shrugged. It was true. Seed, not an incorrect name for it. Dungeons are biological factories and creatures. So for them, would it be truer to say that it's a seed rather than an expanding core? She wrote down. Slowly, her pen stopped. So, you know, I, I don't have a core and thus aren't contract bound. Do you want me to leave? I did technically cheat, she said slowly. I like that kind of cheating. Being clever, but not being rude about it. She's even apologetic about it. Delta waved her hands. It's fine, Alpha translated. Sorry. I didn't introduce myself earlier. Yatina Haley now Congord Felmina at your service. I work for Fairplay as a captain of the 5th Research Division, she bowed, then looked bothered by something. I didn't bring a second tribute, she muttered. 24-hour period, Delta waved off. Alpha told her not to worry about it and looked uncomfortable as he gestured to the tunnel. Welcome to the tour of Delta's second floor. You're currently entering from outside using Quee's tunnel to the second floor, he said. Voice monotone, but despite his nerves, Yatina was eating it up, writing everything down. She raised her hand, and Alpha felt a weird flush. He was the one that was supposed to be raising his hand for questions. Nurse felt weird. Yes, he said, and she had her pen poised. How old is this tunnel? What is the entomology of the word qui? Is it an event or a person? She questioned. Not that old, derived from the shortening of queen, and qui is a person. Alpha said quickly and shuffled down the tunnel. More energy, Adalta encouraged. Alpha picked up his pace. I didn't mean actual energy, be enthusiastic, Delta corrected herself. Enthusiasm. He could do that. With Delta, he could try. He turned and Yatina nearly fell over her own feet skidding to a stop. They stared at each other and actual anxiety set into Alpha, and he spoke on autopilot. Delta's dungeon has over a thousand unique mushrooms and pots, he blurted out. No, Dalta screeched. Wow, Yatina wrote down. Alpha, I don't have a thousand mushrooms, Dalta said and trailed off, as if she just remembered something that she dearly wished she hadn't. Be right back, don't panic, she said, panicking as she vanished. Dalta appeared in the secret garden between floors. She hadn't been here since Hero and the Black Hole Pickles. She had an upgrade that meant that it could be done its own thing. And since it was sort of an error room, the system didn't have proper notifications for it. Hero looked up, looking casual as he read a book from the third floor. Mother, he said warmly. Hero, have there been any weird things going on here? She asked seriously, and the raid boss blinked. Uh, define weird, he asked slowly. A chain of mushrooms slithered past, the head mushroom dark with flickering tongue. Its middle looked engorged as a flock of mushrooms made of cheese ran for their lives. The snake went past a vine, and the thing peeled open to spray mucus-like web covered in spiky mushrooms at every other knot. It dragged the snake into its fanged mouth and turned back to normal. There was a crack of thunder, and a little adorable red mushroom began to fall from the sky. 
Seconds later, the fungi erupted in needles and exploded like shrapnel grenades. They bounced off Hero without any effect. Is this the worst, Velvet? Dalta asked, licking her lips with abject horror. Hero looked over to the side, where the massive eye stared at Delta. It had roses on its head, and a ridge of black gut rods traveling down its back like a mane. The giant bipedal lizard let out a scream that shook the secret garden. God, Delta screamed, as she drove for cover. The thing stomped forward, and the large ridge she thought was a mountain shifted and tore into it, devouring the rot wrecks by three bites. The massive dragon-covered and strashrooms glowed like a celestial deity and roared in victory. Weird? Uh, nothing weird here, Hero said, going back to his book. How? How do I have a dragon? She demanded of the system. Critter, jungle gecko has been bred with gutrot mushroom. Three to four repetitions occurred until the rare mutation occurred. Mutated jungle monitor has bred with troll samples until successful results occurred. Deadly Jungle King was crossbred and with collected dragon bones and absorbed from the defeating Lish Maharia. Only 0.4% chance of a successful subject. Experiment succeeded after 10 tries. Small Dragon was bred with all possible types of mushrooms. After testing weaknesses and strengths, Star Shrooms were selected. Celestial Spore Dragon, Critter? A massive beast of magic and destructive force. Its breath can cause instant spores to form and any unlucky enough to be in its range. Its blood is the most toxic thing to exist on this side of the world. If handled correctly, it is also the strongest antidote around. Its only weakness was its limited range options, which was corrected with Starlight Mushrooms, which allows it to perform aerial bombardments with lasers from nearly 300 feet away. I don't think I should know, but... How much does this cost of DP for my first purchase? She asked, faint voice. First creation is free. All future purchases will cost 30,000 DP, then all further attempts 500,000 mana. I didn't plan this, she told Hero, who simply turned his book to the next page. I know, he said warmly. She eyed the book and saw that it was titled How to Exercise Your Dragon. New can't know about him, she said, burying her face into her hands. It's fine. The dragon's not done cooking, Hero explained, and Delta paused in her groaning. Slowly, she looked up to stare at him. Hero turned another page, nonplussed. Next, Blaine, she asked, voice utterly calm. A box appeared. Celestial Spore Dragon is being combined with Black Hole Pickle. Process will take 14 more days. Expected result, Death Star Dragon. Why is the cancel button grayed out? Delta demanded as she jabbed the screen with the scream. A lot of the system is glitching out, Hero said as he looked around. The dragon behind him went back to sleep. I just need to make it do something else that doesn't evolve further, she said, trying to remain cool as the two high-end raid monsters relaxed nearby. She smashed buttons and dragged icons over and away from the dragon. After a few seconds, a second slot began to tick as she accidentally began the second combination. I can fix this, she cried. She dragged the screen out as if to cancel it, and the screen expanded three more empty slots. I'd quit while you were ahead, Hero warned, but he seemed amused to watch the chaos. If I fill it with other orders, it'll lag and stop, Dalta whispered in blind panic. Like a mushroom and a spider, a piggle and a fish, a piggle and a skeleton, a piggle and a spider. This should really slow it down, a black hole piggle and a bob. She slid down the screen, sweating and breathing hard. What have I done? She asked aloud. A new screen popped up. Due to creative design and adding over 30 new monster designs to the system, you've gained a reward. 
all current and future monster creation times are reduced by 10%. I'm the architect of my own demise, she said with a hollow tone. But you're really good at it. Hero complimented her, and Delta curled into a ball of shame. Monster designs are now being shared on the Delta network. And this gate is designed to keep people out. Its purpose is to remain closed against any intruder's efforts upon it, Alva explained, and nearby Quee drooled on himself as he snored. Yatina was sketching the gate with glee and joy. Amazing, she gushed. Alva felt like he was padding an essay. The gate is made of metal, as wood was too easy to break, he went on. At least the science lady was having fun. Go to hell, I'm saving my captain, Lim told the jerk off Elatori. You're one boy versus an unknown dungeon, Bettina's choices are her own, but you can't seriously think that you can make it further than anyone else, Elatori said, and Lim looked smug. I did what my captain would do and researched my options. I have a guide, he said, and gestured to a boy who yacked the ear of a sour-faced girl with a book clasped to her chest. When the boy looked away, the girl smiled gently at him. The leaderboard members of Team Holy Pot, they agreed to help me, because I asked, he admitted. Then go! I'm not your captain, Alatori said with no emotion. I'll give you permission to take an advanced scout pack. Bring her home, he said, and turned on his heel to walk back to the Fairplay tent. Lim didn't need his permission for that. End of chapter I'd like to thank the T5 peeps, Cam Maxwell, Casper Arnholtz, Bushmaster177, Leslie517, Red Panda121, Cold War Boomerbarthen, Lightjock, DragzoonWRE, Lord Azrakal, Severin Cerberus, and Arcadian. Thank you very much.